0: Claudia Shamba, the host, and this is the August 9th, 2021 edition of Digging Out. This program is getting us past November 3rd, 2020, January 6th, 2021, and beyond. As we collectively clear the debris from the last four days, four weeks, four years, last four centuries, and goodness knows how many millennia. My guest today Returning to this program is Andrea Leon Grossman. She's the Climate Action Director for Azul here today to build something of a grassroots manual for the newly engaged activists or resuming activists using current developments that's breaking news. Andrea Leon Grossman, Climate Action Director of Azul has been advancing environmental justice as climate change is being tackled in all sectors on all levels. Over the last quarter century, she's made the cases for social justice and has been involved in animal rights, juvenile justice, immigrant rights, and the environment. Before Azul, she was leading previously the Food and Water Watch. Born and raised in Mexico City, Andrea has made Los Angeles her home these last 20-some years. She co-authored a book entitled Fracking, and I'm giving the English title because my Spanish isn't good enough for prime time. Fracking, what is it, and how to ensure it doesn't destroy Mexico. It's a foundation for Mexico's legal fight against oil companies. Andrea has also co-authored Sustainable Energy Technologies by CRC Press. Her previous appearances on KUCI have been on both Ask a Leader and Digging Out. She comes to us today from her home office. Welcome back to Digging Out, Andrea Leon Grossman. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you, Claudia. Well, thank you. And with all of the plates, the delicate ceramic plates you keep in the air, this time, this long format, it's a real demand on keeping all those plates in the air. So I really appreciate your indulging us and helping us build something so that people can take their critical thinking that you're giving us today in the nuance of covering the developments. They can take them into being really effective as you've been these many, many years so folks, we're going to talk about the infrastructure rescue packages and the infrastructure as decisions are being made in California too, not just the federal level. We'll give some desalination plant updates in Southern California and bring up the September 14th recall of Governor Gavin Newsom. So let's begin. We have a couple of infrastructure packages being negotiated in the U.S. Congress. And it's complicated in the kind of horse trading that's going on. And when so much money is involved, we know there are a lot of people that are maybe their sites aren't necessarily on the public good, the public benefit, but on how they can clean up with the contracts and all from those appropriations. So let's start with how do you as a grassroots activist deal with the asymmetry of resources that the lobbyists have to have their FaceTime, their one-on-ones with congressional members and what you grassroots of, uh, activists have available in the way of resources?
1: Well, as an organization, we advocate for access to nature, especially the coast and the oceans, And when we do that, it's not just actually access to nature, but also access to those decision makers who craft laws that lead to access to nature. Doing so means that we give tools to those who do this work and volunteers to ensure that they know how to call their legislators, whether it's federal, state, or even city level, and ensure that their voices are heard because we all have voices and um, they just, you know, again, there's a lot of people who uh, have been disenfranchised and that has got to stop. It's been said that if you're not sitting at the table, you're in the menu and we have been on the menu for
0: far too long. Absolutely. And that is actually, every other show now is bringing up that analogy so that people understand (laughs) the stakes and the absolute dynamic. So, so you are helping more and more grassroots activists know how to be, I'll say, fearless. I mean, I've, I've met you at state conventions where you're hobnobbing with everybody there, but but you also have to be where infrastructure packages are being negotiated. So how you can sort of reach out now to listeners and talk about how easy it is to get access, how you tap into a fearlessness that you are not gone by speaking to power, keeping power's attention, noticing that, where is an opportunity that you have got to exploit right in the moment, like you do at conventions? But like, how do you do it in legislative sessions?
1: Well, it's undeniable that you know lobbyists and corporations have an immense amount of money and resources to do their lobbying and, and keep their power. But what we do have is people power. So that's where we come in and ensure that people are aware of the changes that are coming and that they can actually call in and show up uh, when it's possible. Not, not right now with the pandemic, but at least call in uh, and show up at Zoom meetings or wherever the, the legislators are so they can, again, get their voices heard and ensure that the money that we have is invested in public health and in projects that is going to help not hurt the pocket boots of people and nature and environmental justice communities. So, uh, that's extremely important, especially now with given just the immense amount of power and especially the fossil fuel industry and other industries that are seeing the writing on the wall. The climate crisis is here and, and we, we need to take action. We should have taken action yesterday, but we need to take action today to ensure that we have a livable climate.
0: Well, the need is, is not a controvertible point, so I'm, I'm going to make sure that we, we put that that's that's dealt with, and to talk about sort of logistical and tactical details, so people really are empowered to be effective in their civic engagement. And, and I don't mean that civic engagement, invoking that expression in any kind of a small way. I mean it in like the most honorable and invigorate invigorated way, Andrea. And I because I know that's what you do, and and there's no reason why people can't have the same mantle on their shoulders that you've been having on yours for the last 25, 30 years, right?
1: Yes, and I think it's very important for folks who are listening to pick one thing they really care about and just get really involved and, and just learn everything about the subject so that when they get their turn about you know, speaking to the legislators, they can then inform them and educate them about that subject so that when there's a vote, they can actually vote the right way. That's extremely important. It has happened to me many, many times when the, the legislators themselves, they know about, you know, a particular issue in depth, like, you know, I knew. So again, I think it's very important. And for them, they know, you know, if their constituents are aware of
0: this, and they're talking about it, that carries a lot of weight. So how easy is it as a, in a way, again, of leading this little seminar here on activism is how easy is it for you, Andrea, to assess the depth of knowledge that a legislator has in an area that you're bringing to their attention? Is it pretty apparent or it takes a it takes a few rounds?
1: I think it also depends on the subject matter. For instance, here in L.A., uh, one of the, the big things that we have is an extractive economy with all of these oil wells. And actually, Southern California in general, we have the biggest urban oil field in the nation, so it doesn't take a whole lot of knowledge to know how rampant this is and how it's affecting especially communities of color. So once you, you learn the basics, it's not that hard to go up and say, listen, we don't deserve to be poisoned. We deserve to have some safety guidelines in place and setbacks. And this is why I'm counting on you as my representative to take care of me, my public health, and those who live here.
0: The oil rigs, derricks that are all around LA, they're pretty ubiquitous. But you know, Andrea, I don't think I'd have passed the quiz that it's the largest urban oil field in the nation. So is that something that you find yourself reminding them so that they understand the magnitude of the power and the responsibility they have on properly managing those resources and legislating about them? Yeah, sometimes I do. And sometimes
1: I also do public comment, not only to remind the legislators, but also to remind everyone who's in the call or who's present in the room. That's part of gaining people power, because when you know your neighbors are now informed that we're living in this ticking time bomb where there's leaks, there's gas leaks, there's oil leaks, and there's basically chemicals that are poisoning the community. And we, when we know we're gonna have a big earthquake and things can go south really fast, Um, that's when the
0: legislators know other people are listening and we expect them to do right by us. So to speak to the public health issue and and legislating is that there's, I guess, they are increasingly sort of local databases that are building up and providing access to information about what's happening with the, you know, what are these kind of Uh, toxic inputs and where, how are they clustered and what are the impacts on health? Is that, are those kinds of databases something you're working toward? Are they, are those different entities working back with you and providing you data that you bring to the legislative arenas? So there's all kind of data out there.
1: There's a really cool tool online where you can see the nearest oil well is to where you live, work, play, or worship. And that's a really powerful tool to to show people this is where the extractive economy is happening near you. Now, there's a lot of stuff that is connected to that extractive economy, like plastics. So a lot of the oil that is extracted in LA goes to produce plastics. And that means not only the extractive practice that happens here, but also the refineries that are also next to uh, low-income communities of color, and then how those are sold. To people of color, especially where you have the dollar stores and the 99-cent stores, and then how a lot of that stuff ends up in landfills and incinerators. Again, that type of industry that goes full circle. And I don't call it the life cycle of plastic; I call it that cycle of plastics is is poisoning us all. I mean, disproportionately low-income folks. So I also learned lately that the number one export out of the port of Long Beach are plastic pellets. So we are exporting basically pollution around the world and that has got to stop.
0: So Andrea, when you're itemizing all those toxic inputs, there's also the transportation for moving it all around. I mean, that's that can right. be a concentrated toxin too that all the emissions associated with moving those, those enterprises around. If you see
1: all the corridors, whether it's a pipeline, because uh, the only pipeline that doesn't leak is the one that is never built, or the freeways, who lives next to all these big freeways, again, you know, low-income people of color. So the whole industry basically relies on poisoning environmental justice communities. And that's why we really need to stop this extractive economy that is relying basically on sacrifice zones. And we advocate to emerge out of this pandemic that is still going to ensure that we have an equitable transition to renewable energy and to reusables. That's the only way we're gonna survive this plastic pollution that is poisoning us all and our water and our air.
0: For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Digging Out and my guest is Andrea Leon Grossman. She's the Climate Action Director for Azul. We're recording this interview on August 6th because there will be so many things developing around this. So let's talk then about how the infrastructure rescue packages are dealing with some line items. We're already seeing there's some Los Angeles Times coverage of some desal plants. There's one, I believe, in a line item that Congressman Mike Levin has been touting his support for in the Dana Point. It's a smaller project than the Carlsbad project. It's smaller than Poseidon. But let's talk about when you see coverage, but do you see actually a lot more line items than meets the reader's eye? Tell us about how you're tracking all those developments, Andrea, and how listeners can as activists in the climate and environmental activism.
1: Well, there's like you said, there's a lot of moving parts and and there's things that we, you know, would hope there will be more of. And today, for instance, I did find out that there's more money being sought after recycling, water recycling, which is really what we need. California only recycles 13 percent of its water. And if you compare that to, for for instance, Israel that recycles 90 percent of their water, I think that's just appalling. In Southern California, we only recycle 8% of our water. So we have a long way to go with that and we really need solutions. So I do wanna thank Senator Alex Padilla because he's part of the push to recycle. US water. Senator,
0: correct. Just so that it's yes. the federal arena you're talking about where he's involved right. with
1: that. Okay, oh. so we, only we do- 8% in Southern California? That's correct. So, you know, when, when people say we're out of water, we don't really have a water shortage issue. We have a water management issue in California. How are we using the, the water that we have? And basically, you know, we, we still have these golf courses and lawns and uh, we're irrigating water intensive crops in the desert. If we, we just were to Switch things around and also plug our, our leaks. We have water leakage around 10, eight to 10 percent. That would generate way more water than any desalination plant that we build. So, again, are we going to be using our water responsibly or are we going to be investing in solutions that really are not really solutions in are short term and that are going to cost way more than, you know, really the solutions that are going to make us resilient?
0: So, when you're Giving us those numbers, where does stormwater uh, figure into that, if at all?
1: Yeah, again, we have a long way to go. Not only stormwater capture, which is wholesale, rainwater capture, which is more at the residential level, and efficiency. We really need to be investing in in solutions that are going to be giving us long-term resilience and basically, we know we're going to have earthquakes. We're going to, have, we're going to continue to, this drought that is more, I would call it more climate change because this is where we're going and where we are right now. And um, again, building something that costs billions of dollars and privatizes water is not really the solution. And especially when you know that there's a lot of detrimental damage to the ocean, like a desalination plant, uh, that should really be the last resort not the first fight for the drought. The, the fact that we're still dumping millions and millions of gallons of water
0: to the ocean every day, including stormwater runoff, is it, it? Well, not only stormwater, but even including. Um, that's what I'm saying. We we know yeah, about the the residential and commercial sorts of uh, inputs, but in terms of the stormwater runoff, which water, it's a rethinking the entire engineering which you were slow to do here.
1: Correct. And I mean, for instance, in San Diego at the Carlsbad plant, uh, there's a, a nearby plant that is a recycling plant that actually recycles 300 million gallons of water every day. And most of it goes into the ocean. And then the diesel plant only recy- basically produces 50, actually less than 50 million gallons a day. It has never really produced what they said they would. And it's an extraordinary amount of money that we we spend and energy that we just should, cannot afford, especially with the climate change uh, and the, the crisis that we have and killing millions of marine
0: organisms every year. So Andrea, we'll talk about some of those externalities. I just wanna talk about the, the comparison you gave us, that 300 million gallons per day at the recycling plant adjacent to the Carlsbad diesel plant, 300 million gallons a day are discharged. And you said 50 million gallons a day on a good day are what are processed at the Carlsbad desal plant. Is that right? 300 versus 50. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And that the, the kind of energy consumption in that 50 million gallons a day, I don't know what you would, can you capture the comparison of the energy consumption for that processing versus what kind of the energy footprint would be for retaining the discharged 300 million gallons per day of the recycled runoff.
1: Well, and and the fact is that we're already treating that water. We're not just dumping that water into the ocean. It still has to be treated. So just to take it an extra step to make it fully drinkable. Like tertiary. It's missing the tertiary step? Correct. So it just, yeah so again you know there's no excuse to just recycle that water and provide us another 300 million gallons a day in southern
0: california well this sounds like a katie porter whiteboard kind of show are exactly. you working with her no i'm no seriously <laughs> we're digging out these are tools are, that are coming to mind but that just for her to be able to to i mean this is now a, a negotiation with Lobbyists all piling on in a room here over these infrastructure packages. She uses the the whiteboard for her one on ones with CEOs and agency heads, agency directors. So, so, but I just want to put those numbers up there, and that the disparities are tremendous. So, how have you seen, Andrea, that any of these infrastructure rescue packages take up the? sort of stormwater retention sort of component in municipal facilities or in the actual municipal recycling plants retention of water how, are you seeing those line items or is there an advocacy people are are sort of circling around and waiting for their moment to charge in those negotiations and and lobby away at, are they on the microphones outside of the negotiations what how is this this element being brought into this melee of negotiation? Well, negotiations are still ongoing. And again, today's news that
1: uh, Senator Alex Padilla is putting this forth in terms of recycling water, I think it's very encouraging, but we don't know exactly what's going going on. Again, we're still in a pandemic. So I also understand it's a lot harder for folks to get involved because people are still suffering. So, we do what we can with what we have, which, you know, again, it's because we have a battle at the federal level with uh, that infrastructure package. And then we also have the state budget in California that is still going through the motions. So, there's still a lot of battles that we have to look at. Last year, there was also, uh, for instance, in terms of uh, desalination, uh, an attempt to do a gun amend to exempt desalination plants from. Uh, all kinds of environmental regulation. So there's a lot of moving parts. And again, there's a lot of money at stake, especially from private companies in, in that try to privatize water because this is essentially what it is. And uh, so we're trying to you know, keep an eye on, on it all and everything changes day by day. So we're keeping an eye on everything as much as we can.
0: And, and that's difficult. I mean, I'm uh, preparing also an interview with a citizens climate lobby individual locally and... I can see where they have enough resources. I mean, they have a lobbyist who is giving them all the kind of news, what's going on in DC for them to respond in a very concerted way. But I don't know if Azul, are you using a sort of a, a coalescing lobbyist or do you have or somebody tracking? So I just wanna know how it, what are those essential mechanics of tracking these moving parts for Azul and all of your alliances? Well, we, we don't have
1: a lobbyist in D.C., so we, we do get some information and we keep an eye on, on things. We do have a, a legislative analyst who who's working in D.C. and keeping an eye on, on things. But it's not, we're, we're a small group compared to uh, the big greens. So, again, it's it's different, especially working with environmental justice organizations. We rely on other type of of. Uh, you know, getting information and like do you build do you have
0: relationships with the members of congressional staffs? Is that that's your uh, yes. secret weapon yeah.
1: sauce? No, we yeah we do that and, and we we just keep an eye on
0: on you know releases
1: and, and and things as as they are published.
0: And I should correct myself maybe that the CCL person is more aptly termed a legislative analyst and not a lobbyist so that I don't mischaracterize the kind of you know resources they have available, but they they're well healed group though. Um. So, can you tell there are other desalination plants that are line items in any of these rescue packages besides the one that's been discussed in the Los Angeles Times for the Dana Point area? Well, we've seen some money allocated to
1: study desalination and to prop up desalination, not not substantially like billions of dollars, uh, but. In the millions, which is still disheartening,
0: knowing that it's a false solution. Um, again, well, does that signal, Andrea, to you to steady desalination? Is a form of building a database that's intended to be some kind of a promotional tool for that oh, sector? Absolutely. I mean, there,
1: there's things in in the infrastructure package that you know pause and even concern not only desalination but also. Uh, carbon capture and storage, which, again, is another way to keep all these sacrifice zones going and, and uh, completely unacceptable. And that is also being pushed by the fossil
0: fuel industry. Well, I since we last had you on with John Hosevar on Digging Out, there was the Greenpeace bogus interview with the Exxon, former Exxon lobbyist, who said, we've used all of these ploys, including support of carbon tax. I don't know if you, if there was, give you a chance right now while we're talking about these infrastructure packages and the kind of resources that fossil fuels have, what was your reaction to that news item and perhaps things that you've learned behind the scenes with your Greenpeace compatriots about that interview that seemed to offer a bit of an insight it might have been a little dramatized but it's some insight about the kind of tools that the fossil fuels have used to make their case to the public arena
1: well to me it's not surprising especially for them knowing the writings on the wall and we we've, we've known on along especially working in environmental justice that anything that has to do with carbon trading and especially now with all these carbon capture technology is it's just not a solution to climate change and especially the climate crisis right now and it just prolongs an extractive economy and environmental racism so we really need to make this more known to the public and understand that we cannot just continue to pay to poison or just write a check and, and ensure that we'll just pollute here and, and pay elsewhere especially now with the fires as they're going on some of the fires that are happening up north some of those forests were claimed as credits, forestry credits. Now those forests are gone. So what's gonna happen with all those credits that were claimed through those forests? Are they gonna reforest? And if, if they're gonna reforest those forests, how soon are they gonna do it? And how soon are those forests gonna start producing oxygen? And what's gonna to happen to those credits in the meantime? Uh, I think there's a lot of questions that have not been answered, And but what is, clear is that all these renewable energy credits need to go. And what we really need is uh, regulations that are strict, command and control, and just stop polluters from doing what they do, which is creating sacrifice zones.
0: So the credits were part of the cap and trade, correct? Some of them were, yeah. Some of them were. And I know a lot of very invigorate, a lot of very progressive activists have take an exception to cap and trade as a solution. What's the Azul's position on cap and trade? We, we oppose it. Okay, uh, and cap and trade allows people for a a certain kind of a an impact, the impact of an activity, an energy or other activity can be moved to, credit could be, is usually in another parcel, another parcel anywhere in the world, where the monitoring is always suspect. So the, the cap and trade is, uh, and the credit systems are for people to really learn a great deal about and, and so understand the shortcomings.
1: It enables polluters. So instead of, of installing a filter or just cutting emissions altogether, they can keep pollution going and they, just, they can buy forestry credits or something. One of the most Controversial credits uh, are called RED, R-E-D-D, and they happen especially in the Amazon. So what, what happens is that they evict the native folk from there and they privatize the forest and then they convert that into credits and they sell it to polluters. So basically people of color here are screwed. People down there are screwed. And the only winners are the banks making the, tre- the credits and the polluters. And that's why we really need to stop. And that's why we call this uh, pay to pollute scheme or pay to poison scheme. And that has got to stop. It, it doesn't benefit anyone, but again, the polluter and, and the people making the the trading.
0: So the that is to say, then there is it's a legislative arena as well as an administrative arena to deal with the the depleted forest credits for various fossil fuel activities. So where is Azul directing? energy and are you in the legislative arena to deal with how those credits are you know enabled or is it to deal with the administrations, the state level, federal level administrations about renegotiating all of those credits where there's no more sink for the carbon.
1: Well, as a social position, uh, right now, we have a big campaign uh, called 30 by 30. So it's protecting 30% of uh, ocean and land by 2030. And that means giving it full protection and enabling access to people. Because right now there's a lot of uh, nature that is just not accessible to a lot of people, especially low-income people. So we wanna make sure that we protect, again, ocean, coasts, and land, by 2030, so that we can preserve that land, we can have access to the land and protect it from industrialization. So that kind of factors in, and that doesn't mean privatizing the land, that doesn't mean just have it so that, you know, polluter can just come in later and do uh, drilling or any kind of uh, industrial activity. So that's something that we are working very hard at, not only in California, but at the federal level.
0: Well, Andrea, I. I'm kind of unnerved when I think about the there's the third I've talked about legislative and administrative sectors, but I worry about the asymmetry of what Azul can do with the judiciary that is ready to hear challenges to some of these kinds of regulatory mechanisms that you're considering there's a sympathetic judiciary to the high impact fossil fuel Players, how are you dealing with that asymmetry? What, how, how far down the path are you looking at where those legal challenges are going to be coming? Because they're d- definitely being processed now, or, or it's if it's either further down the path or at a seventy thousand foot level of where the kinds of legal, kinds of uh, sustaining of activities that are damaging more and more to the climate.
1: Well, I mean, the fact right now is that pretty much everyone, you know, the majority of people understand that we can't keep going the way we're going and that we need to transition to hundred percent renewable energy, that there are more jobs to be had in a renewable energy economy and a circular economy and regenerative economy. So I think we, we start from that standpoint. We do know that uh, the fossil fuel industry is gonna you know, fight back, but I think organizing and having enough legislators on our
0: side, we can prevail and we must prevail if we wanna have a livable climate. So that the legislative measure could be the defensible sort of history behind a policy so that there, that's one way of dealing with a judiciary sympathetic to certain business sectors. And I'm wondering if you're also, It's I'm hearing embedded in what you're saying, Andrea, is if the public opinion continues to build and build, public opinion could move the needle on a judiciary. Absolutely.
1: I mean, and, and you say for now, like for instance, in Texas, uh, wind energy is huge and uh, you have a lot of, people who are very conservative but they love renewable energy. So we know that this is a bipartisan issue and people understand renewable energy is not just the future but it's the present. People know this is, you know, happening now is a cheap way to produce energy and is less detrimental than fossil fuels. I think nothing is really 100% uh, safe. You know, there's always ways that we need to improve in terms of how we source energy. And we need to continue to be responsible about how we do that.
0: So we're still talking about these infrastructure packages, fixes, rescues, and all that. And I'm looking now at the Biden administration, and I think people are kind of having whiplash about certain inroads into uh, building back a bit better or just moving forward, dragging old conventions into ways of doing business now. So I guess I'm I'm trying to figure out what ways that Azul and others are reminding, helping him with his message. Like when he talked about the unemployment is decreasing, but we want people to think about we still have a lot of work to do. So you slide into there that climate economies are those jobs. I mean, really try to help him message about the relationship with the, with the climate change and reforming the whole labor sector.
1: That's Does correct. that make sense? Yeah, I mean, we we know we fully understand that to, to go 100% renewable energy by 2030, 2035, we do need to employ a lot of people to make that transition. And uh, that's not just good for jobs, but that's good for us, for human health and to have a livable climate.
0: So, are, are there ways that Azul and other uh, allies of yours that are really tr- heavily sending the content that can be the talking point to strengthen that, and from the either the executive branch or the legislative branches to reiterate this is a this green economy has has huge economic dividends for workers. Oh yeah, no, it, it happens all the time, and,
1: and especially it's happening with the Sunrise Movement. Uh, When you look at who's gonna be mostly affected if we don't change things around is the youth. They're they're the ones who have the most to lose and they're the ones who are really taking charge of ensuring this message is heard loud and clear.
0: Thank you. So for anyone who's just joined our show Digging Out, my guest today is Andrea Leon Grossman. She's the Climate Action Director for Azul and we are recording this on august 6th and looking at all of the elements of the infrastructure rescue packages the messaging the trading the access to the process the outcomes i mean it's just so many so many aspects and azul as a as a grassroots organization trying to be as absolutely nimble with the limited resources that they have, you have, Andrea, and with your alliances. So what other, what kind of projects are you seeing covered that are in those packages Do you want to amplify while we're doing this interview together? What What's a, a flagging a really good development that you're positive about, that you're hopeful about?
1: Well, again, I think just the investment in uh, water recycling, I think that's, that will be something that really brought me joy this morning because that's really the way we really need to be going. There's also at the city level, there's uh, movement in terms of plastics. And and the first baby step, as I see it, is that we got an ordinance that we're going to have plastics upon request only for any food establishment. That's the the municipal level, right? Right. So But the, the thing that is inspiring is that we know that Usually, as, as the city of LA goes, or and even the county, then so goes California. And then as California goes, so goes the nation. So I understand you know, how things develop and evolve. And that's you know, how we need to start planting seeds and, and getting community involved. And again, being part of the solution. So we don't just want to point out what's wrong with things, we just want, we really, really want to em- emphasize what the solutions are. And how we can create good green jobs, you know, along the way. And when I say green jobs, it's not just, you know, in terms of energy, but it's also in terms of plastics, it's in terms of water, and it's a full cycle. So I think that's very encouraging, and it really brings, brings me joy to know that more people could be employed in this type
0: of green economy that can benefit
1: a lot of people and can do away with sacrifice zones.
0: Well, when I think the green economy is more than those sectors you're talking about. It's, it's an absolutely every single sector of the economy. Every manufacturing process has a green economy adaptation, an overhaul to make, correct? I mean, it's really expensive. No, yeah, no. And, and we do need to ensure that no
1: one knows any, any sector of, of the population gets disenfranchised and we need to include everyone. And again, ensure no one gets left behind. And that's just talking about environmental and health impacts, but there's there's more that we could discuss in terms of that. But again, I think we can see some of these seeds that are starting to sprout. And, and I think that's very important.
0: Well, I just want guests to know, I have it on a good background that Andrea is talking the talk and walking the walk and she lives on a verdant piece of real estate that is very productive and intentional. So um, I just wanted to say that when you're talking about seeding good examples, that's that's like at the zip code level, right? <laughs> so are there other projects you talked about, the ones that's breaking today, are there any kind of transportation kinds of elements in the rescue package that give you hope or that need our attention in terms of lower energy footprints that, you know, like making a more livable city, combine the, you know, lower carbon transportation choices with a a greener, cooler kind of urban uh, landscape. I mean, are there any of those kinds of incentives that you're seeing built into any of these infrastructure rescue packages?
1: Yeah, I I did see at the federal level there's a lot of money being allocated to public transit and I think that's really what we need to be investing. I think especially we need to be investing in uh, buses and bus lanes. Uh, That's, I think, uh, something that gives you return on investment right away, uh, and is more equitable. Again, especially if you talk to the bus rider association uh, or you know groups that are involved in public transit, I think that's really exciting. Uh, in LA, we do have we're turning the corner in going 100% electric buses by 2028, so that's uh, that's really good. We're also investing in a lot in uh, electric chargers, especially in low-income communities because I think everyone deserves to have electric transportation, if you, if you look at the price of a gallon of gas, you know, it just keeps going on and fluctuating. And usually low income communities have the cars that are less efficient and, and consume the, the most gas. So, and, and have also the worst air quality. So I think it's really important that everyone has access to electric vehicles and
0: electric public transportation. So there's a few details in that that made my mind explode with the, with the possibility to addressing many things at once. It's, it's classic outside the box here. But 2028, you've been just up until the moment been tweeting about what a debacle hosting the Olympics can be for the local public. And 2028 is when Los Angeles will be hosting a summer Olympics. And I'm. it may not be the same kind of commitment to what used to be a biannual tradition was the solar decathlon. So I'm trying, you know where I'm gonna go with this, Andrea and listeners, is instead of, if there's a, a way that the Olympics could continue, okay, fine, maybe in one place, so there's not this rebuilding and kind of a blight that's an outcome, and a displacement that's the outcome of hosting Olympics. But what about an international decathlon, and everybody competes on a great kind of transportation, housing, and other elements? You know, public facilities. They can compete in a decathlon internationally instead of moving Olympics around everywhere. No,
1: I, I agree with you. I think. I mean, the Olympics is a tragedy that they happened this year. So many people are getting sick and the majority of people in Japan did not want them there and they still went ahead and had them. Again, displacement is an issue with the Olympics. They want to triple the police force here in LA and and that's an issue also, especially when you look at all the issues that we've had with police. So I think that they, they should really have you know, just one side, whether it's Athens or or somewhere for, you know, the Olympics and just be done with that. We really need to be taking care of people and prioritizing human health and not an international event that, you know, again, displaces people and prioritizes other type of infrastructure that is just being used once.
0: And again, prioritizing just tourists that come for that one event. I mean, weren't the Japanese really tepid before the pandemic? tepid about supporting being actual hosts of the Olympics. And there were other cities that did not want their names in under consideration for future Olympic sighting, that the populations aren't wanting it. So it seems like, well, International Olympic Committee wants it. So maybe that's your win-win. We can have it in one place. So the International Olympic Committee gets their platform Televising, they get their dividends, and that the populations that are displaced, one city after the next, are spared.
1: Yes, no, you're you're absolutely right. The, the Japanese did not want these Olympics to begin with, and and then they didn't want it even less, you know, less so after the the pandemic, knowing they have numbers rising uh, with COVID, and yeah, I think it's it's just very unfair that they're prioritizing profits and broadcasting rights and everything over public health. So we also know that, you know, by 2028, we're going to have a much warmer climate in uh, the Summer Olympics. I don't, I don't know if they're even going to be able to happen. Well, they're suffering for- this
0: year in, in Tokyo, for sure. Yes, I mean, we've been reading all you know, about the athletes are just there.
1: So, I mean, in, we're having heat waves here in California, and it's, uh, you know, just 2021. So in seven years, Uh, even if we start acting right now the way we need to be acting, I would anticipate having more heat
0: waves by then. So, but what I'm trying to do is if there's a booster, I need to boost here. I mean, we used to have world's fairs where there would be kind of an equivalent of a solar decathlon. There would be new technologies introduced for everybody to salivate over, but we could make the solar decathlon a kind of challenge for everybody to to really with, with criteria that are honest kinds of measures of lowered energy and water and other resource footprints that, that we're gonna advance the green economy and there's all this kind of status for all those boosters who need to boost status. Yeah,
1: I, I mean, I could see uh, you know, a competition to see who could be the most efficient and I think even the, most, the more equitable, if you will. That's uh, which, part of the criteria. I would just be cautious on industry trying to monetize something like that.
0: So that would be my only, uh, and, and how do you measure that? Right, right. But, and so that's what, these are all things that if we don't bring them up now it'll never get considered Andrea. <laughs> we, but I, no, I understand how that, it, it, there were some very interesting projects that, and Irvine hosted them. I I think two or three solar decathlons and so yeah, there's some very, very many factors. So let us consider here, are there any other kinds of opportunities to advance closed loop kinds of technologies that inside the infrastructures? Is, is closed loop even a word expression, do you think bouncing around DC right now? Because I don't hear it nearly enough, Andrea. Do you think they're using those expressions with your favorite legislative aides? Um, I'm
1: not really sure. I mean, I I usually try to use regenerative because I think that's really what we need to have. And, uh, you know, the lowest impact, especially with fragile ecosystems. So, and, and again, you know, it happens again from the city level all the way to the federal level. But it's, I think it's really important that people get engaged. And if they have something in mind, it's like, why can we have, rooftop solar everywhere, or why can we have microgrids, or why can we have gray water systems in every house? Uh, Just get in touch with your representatives and just ask. We really need to up the ante and ensure that our voices are heard.
0: Well, and the other jurisdiction that we're really uh, needing to bring out here is for voters to know down ballot all the way down are the water district managers. And don't they have a lot of clout to decide on technologies and performance standards and all of that. Let's make a pitch for that kind of infrastructure consideration. Yes, and a lot of those are also appointed
1: officials. So our elected officials appoint them. And we we really need to make sure that they appoint the right people uh, right now, there was a big scandal, for instance, in West Basin Water District, and the uh, the general manager is is about to be fired
0: over sexual harassment allegations. Well, let's so, let's say cereal while we're at it.
1: Yes. So you know, there's there's issues going everywhere, and corruption, and also a lot of these agencies think that they are in. In, in a business of selling water, not in no managing so. water. So that's an issue. They just want to sell more water and they know that water consumption is going down because when we're asked to conserve, we usually step up to the plate and we do conserve. So we need to make sure that we have the right people in place to ensure we have water reliability and resilience.
0: Did you want to do an update on Poseidon right now? I don't really have much. I mean, it's just going to go before the Coastal Commission sometime. And they keep deferring, right? The schedule because of the pandemic. They can't have, uh, they're sort of slow in the Coastal Commission staffing and they're sort of spreading out their agenda. Is that correct? So they got the approval at the Regional Water Board. A year ago, there was something posted
1: at the Regional Water Board that there was an issue with that approval in the Attachment K. And that's so the, the pan- mitigation? Yeah. So okay. the permit is not permit or something. So I'm sure Poseidon is going to fix that. But what is troubling is that we still have to look at the whole thing and, and analyze what that means. But if they fix it and everything it's like, what about the public? I mean, do we have any say? Can we comment on that? I mean, we, we don't know, like, I don't think this has happened before, like where you give a permit and then you pull back and say, well, the permit is not granted now, but you have to fix this first and then you fix it. But then there was no public involvement in that. I don't know, it it just- So that's a
0: part, that's a legal challenge though, though, but that's also resources to challenge that. And it may not be not, the legal challenge may have a a real- So right
1: now there's no legal challenge. There's only an appeal, not a lawsuit. Okay, that kind, yeah we already submitted the appeal and that we are waiting to hear back from the uh, state water board. Okay. And, um, but in the meantime, they submitted the uh, application before the Coastal Commission, but they want to have it both ways. So they're applying to have more like a commercial operation, but they want to call it critical infrastructure. So if it's critical infrastructure, it needs to meet certain standards and it needs to have like, all kinds of earthquake retrofitting or, you know, like. And they don't have that, right? No. But if, if it's just commercial, it doesn't need to meet all these other standards. And, uh, and it, it will take less time to build.
0: So they're going to stick, that's what commercial, so that it lowers their performance standard or their right. build right. out. The one,
1: the one in San Diego is critical infrastructure. So there's different messaging there. That is happening and they control the timing of everything and then they also need to go once again before the state lands commission to talk about their greenhouse gas emission footprint proposal. and then they have one more time to go before fiona ma about their bond allocation because they won the 1.1 billion dollar in right that should go to affordable housing. So there's still a few more regulatory agencies involved and uh, we're keeping an eye on all that and see
0: kind of where we go from here. So any other federal state infrastructure arenas in appropriations and all that you wanna talk about? Um, There was just one bill
1: that thankfully died this year. I think it was AB 1139, which would have killed the uh, Ferdinand Terrace for of solar and was pushed mostly by the utilities. They also see the writing on the wall in terms of distributed generation, which is really what we need. And the right way to do solar energy is really locally because the the more you generate local energy, the less waste there is, the the more
0: efficient it becomes. So distributed energy, so that everybody's on board here, that is the closed loop that let's say I'm, our neighborhood or our house is generating solar energy and we get it back. Right, and then- It's, it's it a made, loop, the loop is closed. It's, it's a tighter loop at least.
1: And also again, we live in earthquake land, so we, we will have an earthquake soon. And it's important that we generate as much of that energy locally and we don't depend on these long-term transmission lines. When you start building solar farms far away that depend on this transmission line, that is, first of all, not really environmentally friendly because you're impacting environment wherever you're putting these solar farms, and then you rely on those big transmission lines. When you have all these roofs of solar that you could put solar on, you're producing the energy locally, and also you're producing cool roofs because that insulates the roof and you, you need less energy to cool the house. So there's so many benefits from having rooftop solar and the fact that utilities are now attacking that is really awful. And that bill is gonna come back next year. And they use all kinds of false arguments to, to fight feed in tariffs, which is the, the ability for you to sell back whatever energy you don't need back into the into the, uh, into the the grid. So again, I think we, we really need to make sure that those who already invested in, in rooftop solar ensure that they made invest their, their investment safely. And there's also a lot of programs and even Great Alternative installs those uh, rooftop of solar systems for free in low-income homes. So we, we really need to encourage more green energy, not discourage it uh, with bills like that.
0: So also the transmission lines are more of a concern with wildfire hazards.
1: Yeah, I mean, and the thing is that utilities don't make any money out of the transmission lines per se. So they don't really invest in upkeeping of the transmission lines. So anyway, you look at it, if we really want to be more resilient, we will have more microgrids and more distributed generation. And that's why we need rooftop solar.
0: Well, thank you for the last topic we have in California for listeners that are voters in California. We have a recall of governor gavin newsom on september 14th it's here before we know it so azul has an agenda and the governor has been performing in good ways and in bad ways i'm not asking your position on the recall i just want for i want to know that azul is making sure people are definitely participating they are voting in the recall well we we all need
1: to vote whether it's this election or next election voting is the way to be heard and it's it's really important that we show up for the elections that's the way we you know we we know politicians know that we're voting and we we're,
0: we're seen so andrea do you wish to close with anything in particular for aspiring grassroots activists, resuming grassroots activists to be as effective as possible for the public good? Yeah, I think
1: organizing is super important. It's, you know, it's the only way that we can create social change is the way we can counter these loads and loads of money and lobbying. And it's, again, our, our future depends on it. So. Pick the one or two things that you really care about, pick the group that you identify with,
0: and again, join them. People Power is gonna deliver the goods. Well, thank you for giving us this time that you could have given a lot of legislative tracking today. Thank you, Andrea, for being on Digging Out. Thank you for having me. My guest was Andrea Leon Grossman. She's the Climate Action Director for Azul. We're recording this interview today on August 6th. Thanks again, Andrea. Thank you. Just a few announcements before I close. The Orange County Board of Supervisors redistricting process is continuing this week. The Wednesday, August 11th meeting will be from 6 to 8 p.m. It will be in the Fullerton Community Center Grand Hall. The August 12th meeting will be also 6 to 8 p.m. at the Coast Community College District Office in Costa Mesa. For more information, go to www.ocgov.com forward slash redistricting the meetings can be live streamed virtually by following their facebook page facebook.com forward slash ocgov and also on that platform will be the previously conducted meetings all in recorded videos another announcement is the governor's recall will be starting on September 4th and end on September 14th. For more information, you can go to ocvote.com and get your answers. We'll all be receiving vote-by-mail ballots. Well, that's my show for today. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening.